Welcome to the Valley Beit Midrash podcast, a program of Valley Beit Midrash, a global center of learning and action. We're bringing you the best in diverse, pluralistic Jewish wisdom, all with the goal of improving lives in our global community. I'm Rabbi Shmuley Yanklowitz. Let's get started. Hello, everyone. Welcome. Thank you so much for being here today to learn with Dr. Dina Aronoff about the maternal divine. Dina Aronoff is faculty director at the Richard S. Dinner Center for Jewish Studies at the Graduate Theological Union, Berkeley. She teaches rabbinic literature, medieval patterns of Jewish thought, and the broader question of continuity and change in Jewish history. Her recent publications engage with the subject of childcare, maternity, and the making of Jewish culture. Without further ado, Welcome, Dr. Dina Aronoff. Thank you so much. Thank you uh, to your program for inviting me to speak. Um, this is a very special uh, community of learners um, and teachers, and I'm really honored to be a part of it. And I'm so happy to see so many of you here in the Zoom room. And yes, my name is Dina Aronoff. I um, born in New York, uh, live now in Berkeley, California, and I teach rabbinics. Uh, and Jewish culture. And my focus and passion over these last few years has been the importance of household environments and family relationships in the making of Jewish culture. And what has been most gratifying to me is that this perspective doesn't put me at odds with our traditional materials, but rather the opposite. There's so much immediate resonance between a focus on the mother or whoever it is that plays that role of the provider of constant care to a young child, the household environment, these are mainstays of traditional Jewish life. And so it's been very easy, I think, to kind of develop a little bit further um, the importance of the household, family relations, the maternal relation in the making of Jewish culture, which is what I focus on. And as part of what I've been studying, I've even begun to tease out the presence of maternal aspects in traditional depictions of God, of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, of the divine. Um, you might know that uh, Judaism is famous for having a very pure uh, sense of the single God. And um, at the same time, our Torah is filled with the story of God's relationship with humanity, often in highly personified terms. So Jewish theology is complicated because we insist on a pure monotheism and we insist that God doesn't have human characteristics. Uh, and at the same time, our stories are stories of God's relationship to us, God speaking to us, God creating us. And so we're inevitably in a, a world of thinking in which God is at least rendered in uh, human terms, possibly so that we can hear it with our human ears. The Torah was a communication to the people. So among the ways that the divine is rendered in Torah and in Talmud, among them include what I would argue are certain maternal characteristics. And I'd like to kind of surface those characteristics because I think that um, as human beings, we all had somebody who provided the constant care that's necessary for an infant to survive. 
Often that's the mother, but it need not be. It's a some person charged with that steady, constant provision of care. And in many ways, that's our most foundational human experience, common human experience. And to the extent that we can make that relationship more visible, perhaps we can also restore all kinds of other positive, important, life-affirming aspects of who we are and our relationship to Torah and to God. So um, I'll just start. There's a pasuk, there's a verse in Mishlei, Shma b'ni musar avicha va'al titosh Torah Listen, my child, to the um, to the instruction, to the guidance of of your father, and do not reject the Torah of your mother. So this is a a pasuk, a verse that's very typical in the book of Mishlei and in wisdom literature in general in the Tanakh, that it has a parallel structure. And whenever you see that kind of parallel structure, you're like faced with a, a decision each time, which is, do I emphasize, is this really one point that's kind of being split apart poetically, but it's, it's saying the same thing, but different aspects of the same thing? Or is this verse, even with this parallel structure, offering us two very important teachings, separate important teachings? So one way to read this is take in the wisdom of your parents. But the language is, is split and doubled. And what surfaces is a very beautiful term, Torah imecha, the Torah of your mother. Listen to the Torah of your mother. What is the Torah of the mother or, and so you're going to see that when I use the term mother, I mean that in the broadest sense, which is those sets of relationships, ideally it's many of them actually, that surround us in childhood and mark us as distinctive human beings. I, I always say there's no child rearing in the abstract. All human beings need care. But that care is actualized in culturally specific, linguistically specific ways. Who we are is in many ways a product of that early environment. Um, Winnicott was a well-known psychoanalyst from uh, actually his a lot of his professional life, or maybe let's just say the most formative years of his professional life, was when he was helping to serve the orphaned population in uh, England during World War II or people who were separated from their families in World War II in England. And he became very sensitive as a result to how critical the maternal relation is in the psychological and emotional well-being of a child. And so he's one of the psychoanalysts, there were a few of them, um, to really kind of bring emphasis uh, to the maternal relationship. And um, what Winnicott tended to emphasize was the importance of what he called mothering of an ordinary sort. He didn't want you to think that what a child needed was, let's say, something extraordinary, but actually the ordinary care that's necessary for an infant to survive. He has famous for having said, there is no such thing as a baby. There is only a baby and someone. There's no such thing as a baby. There is only a baby and someone. So we all had a someone. And um, naturally, what that makes me want to say is, where does that constant relationship show up 
in the Torah, okay? And the Hebrew word that we're going to focus on for the time that we have today, um, and I'm very excited to have this time to talk about it with you, is the Hebrew root Aleph Mem Nun. Aleph Mem Nun might be most familiar to some of you, given that it's the Hebrew root for the word Amen, Amen, Emunah, uh, faith, Neeman, faithful. Um, in many ways, this root, it's what I get, I'll just say, possibly one of the most important Hebrew roots, certainly in our liturgy and our davening. It's our way of affirming if someone, when someone makes a blessing. Um, it appears also in the Tanakh, um, in the in Tehillim, in Psalms. It appears in the book of Numbers as part of the temple ritual for the suspected wife and uh, the kind of call and response that she has with the high priest, with the priest in that situation. Amen is an ancient Hebrew affirmative. It says, yes, I affirm what's just been said. I join what's just been said. And it's a root that appears hundreds of times in the Tanakh, almost always to mean a kind of faithfulness, okay? Like, uh, I, I'm with you, no daylight, no daylight. Um, later in its history, it would come to mean to subscribe to a particular doctrine, to believe in, okay, ani ma'amin, I believe in. I believe in is a perfectly fine translation of the later meanings of the term. In the Torah, it means I am faithful to. It's maybe one of the most relational Hebrew words as well. It, um, this term of ne'eman, of faithful, okay, of being constantly with, captures so beautifully this maternal function that I started out with today, which is to be constantly with a baby, uh, to take Winnicott. There's no such thing as a baby. There is only a baby and someone. And is it possible that it's that experience of constant care that provides the concrete experience from which these more abstract uses of the term could be derived, like to believe in something, to trust in something, starts out with that initial steady relationship. Now, the word, the root Aleph Memnun in the Torah also refers to care for a young child. Around six or seven times, depending on how you count, the term for a nurse of a young child, Omen, Omenet, is, uh, appears. Uh, maybe I'll give a, uh, the example that maybe you'll most enjoy kind of recalling from the scroll of Esther, Megillat Esther. Umordechai omen et hadassah ki ein la avaim. Esther, they're called hadassah, has no mother and father, and Mordechai became her constant care provider, custodian. He took her in his custody. Is it so hard to imagine that that word of omen might have nestled within it the two-letter root for mother, aleph mem. 
which could be was expanded from this basic meaning of aim, which is to be constantly with someone and to provide for them, to omen as a verb that is provider of maternal care, which could provide the initial concrete experience from which you could imagine what it is to be faithful in a more abstract way so that Moshe can become Ne'eman. That's another very powerful reference. And forgive me that I don't have a source sheet, but I, I hope that you'll go back to these verses in the book of Numbers. In fact, in the book of Numbers, right after we see a description of the man that falls in the desert, this food of indeterminate flavor, but immense regularity and nutrition that kind of graces the floor of the desert that the people consume in their, let's call it desert infancy, that maternal man that's provided to them. Nevertheless, the people feel frustration. They would like different food and variety. And Moshe loses his he becomes very frustrated with the complaints of the people. And he says, did I become pregnant with this people? Did I birth them on my lap? Must I, do I carry them as an omen would carry a yonik? Must I carry them the way a nurse carries the nursling? So the Torah has key, key, locations where the omen appears, the nurse of a young child. It doesn't appear that often. I would say part of that is because everyday household life is not always kind of center stage in the Torah. It's much more about kind of leadership, the collective experience of the people. I think I'm looking around the room. I think people are familiar of when it is that the maternal tends to surface in the Torah text and when it doesn't. What if every time the Torah talks about that quality of constancy and faithfulness, actually the maternal quality is being kind of summoned and threaded into the narrative so that Moshe becomes maternal in that moment? I mean, he actually does. Mordechai becomes maternal. Yes, the, the notion of care for a young child tends to come up when we're talking about a male figure who becomes a nurse like Moshe or Mordechai. But we can we can understand from those references that everyday life was filled with the nursing of young child and that the term was omen and that there is an etymological link. I'll just back off from making any kind of fixed claims between that function of constant and regular care for a young child and the faithfulness of that, and faithfulness in the abstract. What this means is that every time we declare emunah, whenever we say amen, in affirmation of somebody's bracha, in affirmation of somebody doing a mitzvah, we are saying something like, I am constant with you. I am regular with you. I am mother to you. And to bring her in, in a time when I think it's, I, now we probably could each have our own stories about our own mothers and the difficulties of those relationships and wondering and asking how mothers are depicted in pop culture, 
Um, we it's arguable that we're in a phase where the the maternal doesn't quite let's just say benefit from having a lofty, revered, and positive kind of iconography. Um, and and yet we know how important our mothers are. Um, and so to to find the maternal aspect of the people in our history and of HaKadosh Baruch Hu also as maternal to us, it can be a, a tikkun, it can be an important kind of correction for a blind spot, a blind spot um, in, in maternal visibility. So uh, I'd like to circle back to the pasuk the, that I mentioned, the verse that I mentioned from Mishlei, from Proverbs, Shma b'ni musar avicha ve'al titosh tarat imecha. Do not, do not disregard and reject the Torah of your mother. So what is the Torah of the mother? So this is just another aspect. Um, what instruction happens in the context of family relationships? So here's another kind of, I don't know, perspective I'd like for all of you to consider, and then we'll talk about it, which is that a lot of times when people think about the beginnings of Jewish learning, one thinks about, uh, let's call these high visibility transitions, like when a child is first escorted to a school outside the home environment and has a new appointed teacher, maybe that's the beginning also of the uh, Hebrew literacy, reading text, that is often thought of as the beginning of um, chinuch, of uh, Jewish education. And uh, there's beautiful rituals associated with it. Some of you might know them, the eating, writing the letters in honey and consuming them. In medieval records in Europe, we have examples of um, the, the child is wrapped in a talit, carried by the father, from one domain to the other. So really beautiful kind of transition spatially, but also in terms of the child moving from this very much like kind of nestled in the context of family relationships, even extended family. I'm not pretending that hundreds of years ago, it was this kind of isolated nuclear arrangement that many of us live in today. Even a broader set of households, the child's world were those was those family relationships. And the beginning is often marked when the child pivots away from those relationships towards schooling in what we would recognize as more formal schooling. However, and perhaps you're kind of expecting this move of me and, you know, uh, which is actually the formation of the child starts far earlier than that. And perhaps we might even go further. Perhaps we might even say that the primary formation of the child, the most significant formation of the child might actually be concluding. And that what's launched in that pivot away from household relationships is secondary to the primary phase of learning. Happily, I'm just saying, we don't have to choose, okay? So, uh, you know, and if we, in discussion, I'd love to hear what people think about that. But it's a very profound inversion of typical thoughts about school, education, and chinuch, 
which is to consider, meaning the traditional term for education, that it's the first phase of learning. That here's where it comes. As I said earlier, there is no child rearing in the abstract. Often when the first phase of learning, if it's tended to at all in kind of popular consciousness, it's often thought of in highly universalistic terms, meaning the child needs to be fed, kept clean, um, surrounded in positive, you know, positive, you know, attentive environment, responsive environment. So think Winnicott, okay? All of that is true, except that none of that happens in the abstract. What the affect of the house, what music is happening, what language is happening, how the household keeps time. And now we're, we'll move specifically to the example of a Jewish household. The Shabbat, Shabbat tunes, the hustle and bustle on Friday. Everything's included here, people, also. It's not just kind of highly visible ceremony, but also the everyday aspects that shape a household life. So the, the, the hustle and bustle on Friday, the unique rhythms of Saturday, even the unique rhythms of Sunday. Given Shabbat, Sunday is different in, in, in a household. And, and, and during the week, does somebody leave early and attend synagogue services, foods that are eaten, um, all, um, household customs. So the, the child, uh, the, the, there's a theorist that deeply influences how I think about um, the cultural aspects of child development. And that is somebody named Moshe Feldenkrais. Some of you might be familiar with the Feldenkrais method it is a method that Moshe Feldenkrais, who lived, um, I think, until around 1980, I should have uh, written down his dates. He developed a technique of awareness, movement with awareness, that is meant to assist people in breaking habits of movement that are causing pain and kind of suboptimal body experience and mind. And uh, he developed these very subtle movement exercises that awaken the kind of neuro aspects of movement that also enable new possibilities of movement and healing. Now, you might say, <laughs> why are you talking about Moshe Feldenkrais? Uh, Moshe Feldenkrais had an understanding that our habits of movement are acquired very, very early in life. Um, and uh, I'm so glad many of you are years and years away from midlife and the aches and pains of midlife. But in midlife is often when those habits of movements uh, are no longer sustainable. And that's often when people start to try to figure out how to alter their habits of movement so they have more ease and comfort in their bodies. So Feldenkrais was uh, famous for saying that in the first months and years of life, we become who we are as a person. And we stay that way, whether we study medicine or thermodynamics, or I'm quoting Feldenkrais here. For Feldenkrais, all of that learning is academic learning, which for him means you can do it, you cannot do it, you could do it now, you can do it later, you want to start a family, you could academic learning, that's later. Learning to become a person, and I think Feldenkrais was translating the Yiddish in his mind when he said that, learning to become a mensch, who you are as a person, that happens in the first months and years of life. 
And so, and I'm quoting again, it's a very peculiar form of learning of extreme importance. The learning of the first months and years of life create patterns of thought, movement, relationships that organize a person's movements lifelong. So what this means is we have to think of learning as not beginning at three years old or five years old when the child pivots away from family relationships, but we actually have to think that the primary phase of learning is exactly that phase that takes place in the context of family care. A wonderful Torah example of this is Moshe Rabbeinu again. When Moshe is born and we're, well, we're already receiving the Torah in this week's Parsha, but we're sort of still in the Exodus narrative in our Torah reading. When Moshe is born, he's, as you know, his mother, uh, desperate to figure some way to save him, puts him in this uh, uh, basket on the river or in the in the veg vegetation growth alongside the river. And the daughter of Pharaoh uh, sees the child and then Moshe's sister arranges for the child to be nursed by his own mother. And this amazing story that Moshe is brought back to his mother, Yocheved who nurses him, and only when, the language is vayigdal hayeled, when the child became gadol, translate that how you will, he, he matures in some fashion, then he is restored to the palace. Now, this episode of his life, his years of nursing in his mother's house, it's kind of easy to lose sight of it a bit, um, except it ends up making sense of so much of the story <clears throat> because the Torah text comes back again. Interestingly, this time it says, Vayigdal. I, I really would like to just, uh, just get it right. There's a repetition uh, when Moshe exits the palace. Ah, in Pasuk Yud Aleph, if you look this up in verse 11 of chapter 2 of Exodus. And then in those days, Vayigdal Moshe. It repeats. Wait, I thought he already grew up. Clearly, there's two. Rashi on that spot says that this Vayigdal has to do with his prominence. He grew in prominence. We could also think developmentally that Vayigdal Hayeled meant he was how old? It's our guess here. Five, when he was reintroduced to the palace and weaned from his mother. And then there's Vayigdal when he steps out into the work fields. Regardless, when Moshe steps out into the fields, he sees his brothers in their slave labor. And many people read that section and they say, why did he recognize them as his brothers? Isn't he prince of the palace? And then you say, oh, of course he recognized them. His first months and years of life were spent immersed in his Hebrew household, in the context of those family relationships, when he pivots to the palace, to think of Moshe Feldenkrais's language, he already is who he is as a person. The other stuff gets added on. When he goes out into the field and he sees his fellow um, Hebrews suffering and so distressed, 
He acts in a very primal and actually violent way, if you know the story. He kills the Egyptian who's whipping them. So if we want to look to Moshe's formation, look to those first months and years of life and the miraculous way that the women in that narrative restore his relationship to his mother. Um, and that restored relationship equipped him with the identity that he would then activate as the redeem the redeemer of the people from Egypt. It's amazing. So this the importance of the household learning, can we call it that? Learning in relation to the mother, who I'm using almost as a metonym, as a piece of the family relationships, to think about that phase of learning as critical, um, to think of Torah imecha, the Torah of the mother, as that critical foundation of learning, um, I think is an important kind of correction for a blind spot in thinking about the making of Jewish culture. Uh, I was recently watching a shiur by a rabbi in Israel named Harav Asher Weiss. Um, he offers shiurim classes on halacha, on Jewish law. He offers shiurim on, uh, um, you know, kind of 10 minutes about the, the parsha. And I recently watched a class that he offered on the halacha of the law of um, chinuch, of educating one's child. And he shared in uh, awe-inspiring mastery of our tradition, the fact that there really is a debate as to whether the obligation to educate one's child is rabbinic or biblical. And if it's deoraita, if it's biblical, that kind of gives it a very primary place. And then the rabbinic instruction comes along to give more structure to it, to establish the exact kind of timing of the obligation, but that there is a core biblical obligation um, is, is a question. Now, maybe you'll think, how could there be any question? But I will share with you, there are other key Jewish practices that there's debate as to whether the Torah requires it of us or whether the rabbis came in and established it for us. The most important example, I think, being tefillah, davening, praying. There is an important early debate um, about whether the obligation to pray is da'oraita from the Torah, elaborated upon and given more detail by the rabbis, or did the rabbis actually establish tefillah, the prayer obligation, um, entirely in an era in which there's no temple, no Beit HaMikdash? So, I mean, that's a topic for another shiur, another class together. But um, in terms of chinuch, it's similar. There's like a kind of common sense. You would think naturally you have to educate your child. Uh, the question is, is the Torah instructing this and obligating this uh, of us? And then the rabbis came in and gave some specific specificity to it. And Rav Asher Weiss teaches in this class is that according to his position, it is de'oraita. There is a biblical commandment to educate one's child. It is a commandment that has no measure, no specific time, not even specific content, but it is the kind of spirit of the obligation 
to provide for one's child, of course, their basic needs always to sustain their lives. But kind of along with that, always along with that will be to educate them in terms of who they are Jewishly. When they eat a food, do they pause and make a bracha and, and awaken a sense of gratitude for the experience of having the food? Do they say Shema at night? Once they're old enough to kind of hold a lulav and a trog on Sukkot, you know, do we put place that in their hands? Um, so the this, what I would like to say is that the de'oraita obligation, the biblical obligation to educate our children is the Torah imecha of Mishle. So the, and I'd like to, that is the Torah of the mother. And I really do want to say, it's very important to me that I'm not limiting this role of teacher to just a kind of the biological mother. Though quite often the biological mother is the one charged with this task of constant presence. So I'm just kind of evoking some of the, some of what we talked about at the start of this class, who is the aim, who is the mother, is the one who's ne'eman, is the constant. This is not the most kind of romantic attribute of motherhood. What it is to raise a child is many things, but sometimes what gets overlooked is just the 24-7 part of it. Um, and if if you've raised an infant, it's possible that you might then you might know firsthand that it's all about constant. It's all about that you can't walk away just for a second. And to take that constant, that role of being constantly there and providing, and to understand that in the matrix, in the fabric of that relationship, you are also teaching Torah. And then to also consider that when you embody that role of providing constant care as aim, you are also enacting a divine quality. God has compassion and the word for compassion is rachum, which is rechem, which is womb. So the the God's compassion is also maternal compassion. So mahu rachum afatarachum. What God is the constant mother there in the night and in the morning. Lahagid baboker chastecha veemunatcha balelot. Whoa! Like for me, what happens with that pasuk? So the, in in the psalm for Shabbat, when we're singing to Hashem. And we're saying to speak in the morning of your chesed, of your kindness. Now, typical translations, I invite you, go back to the Tanakh now, look up every time that root appears. And I invite you to see whether the English translation you're looking at moves to the very far abstract translation of um, to believe in something. When actually the Hebrew is staying much closer to, to be constant and faithful. And in this Pasuk, it's so powerful because in this Pasuk, it's saying, that you're steady and alongside me in the night. 
So the the when God is Neeman to us, God is mother to us. And we can love that and we can draw close to that and we could be nourished by that. And sometimes the in the Tanakh, more explicit divine, uh, this top, this lecture today was called the maternal divine. Sometimes there are more explicit references to God as a maternal figure, but I'm going to share with you, it often happens indirectly. Um, and I direct you to the depictions of Zion, of Zion and Jerusalem, in the end of Yeshayahu, of Isaiah, because sometimes in those chapters of Nechama, those chapters of comfort, the comfort of the people is described <clears throat> as a child would be comforted by their mother. But the mother figure is Tzion. So there's a way in which <clears throat> depictions of Tzion, she becomes, um, I used to have a nice word for it, is she becomes a kind of uh, an expression of the maternal divine. When you come back to Zion, you will be, and I'm translating here, these are real images, okay? Just to tell you, you'll be carried on the hip. You'll be nursed by the, you know, the, the Gentile uh, nations that are also kind of coming up to, to Jerusalem in, in uh, homage and pilgrimage. They will nurse you all. You'll have so much milk. You'll be, you'll be drunk on milk, carried on the hip. I sometimes like to think of that as, an eternal uppy. Do you ever have a kid say, uppy, uppy, uppy? This is like the end of Yeshayahu saying all the time, I've got you right on the hip. You'll be on my laps. We're going to be together. We're going to. So though that is those chapters describe in very physical terms, the pleasures and of intimacy between a mother and a child as a way to comfort the people and like provide for them this vision of what it is to be held again. So it's it's even in a way more explicit there, but also less explicit because it's Sion who's playing that role of, of the mother, though it is also the case that it's at the end of Yeshayahu that the most explicit mention is a, a comparison of God to the mo a mother appears. And let's just see... Um, uh, I, I'm not, I'm not going to, if maybe someone here wants to put it in the chat. Oh yes. Okay. At the end of Yeshayahu, and I'll, I'll conclude with this and the last chapter 66, which I just realized is the, uh, this is the chapter that's read when Rosh Chodesh falls on Shabbat. Um, so it's something that we read pretty often. And in that is the Pasuk, uh, starting with 12, I'll just share this is what Hashem says, here I am, I'm establishing like a, a river of peace, a, 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 a stream that is flowing the honor of the, of the nations, <clears throat> and you will be nursed, uh, taking in milk on the hip, you'll be carried on the knees and in delight. And like a man whose mother shall comfort him, so shall I comfort you in Yerushalayim, you will be comforted.
So I'm very passionate about this topic, um, and we can talk in the discussion about, about why, but I'll just share one possibility, why I think it's so urgent that we um, bring this maternal imagery a little bit more towards the center, and even to take the word amen and to hear it, the maternal valence in there of what it is to be constantly with someone. I, I can't help but feel that part of what's causing so much pain and so much conflict in our world today is some sense that those things that are constant, we don't pay attention to. It's like we're trained as humans to scan for all the variables and what could go wrong, but we're not really so trained to walk around all the time grateful, like every time I take a, an inhale, fresh air, and I take a drink of water, water. I mean, the brachas are there to help us with a gratitude practice, but do I walk around going, mother? I don't. And what happens in our society when our climate, our natural resources, the, the, the nutrients that have to be in the soil to produce our food, the water, the Colorado River. This is not just about a, a, a mother or a family. It's about all of the constant matters upon which life depends that used to provide a kind of backdrop for the more important stuff in the foreground like every individual and what they choose to do or not to do. But I think we're in a time where we just need like a major inversion. The background has to become the foreground. And the mother is, represents all of those constant resources of care that we as a society need to start to prioritize and nourish. Um, in our decision-making about our resources. So um, the maternal divine is a, also a way to kind of think about everything that we rely on and that sustains us. And to give it room in our Jewish practice, it could be very therapeutic on an individual level and then might even maybe mobilize us towards more life-affirming steps um, more broadly as a society. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Aronoff. Uh, we'd love to open it up to questions. Um, if you'd like to ask a question, please feel free to raise your hand or unmute um, and we can get started. Uh, hi, Muriel. Hi, I'm Mirella. That was a wonderful Shior. Thank you so much. I was so inspired by that. Um, when you were first speaking, I have a comment and a question. <laughs> My comment is when I was when, at the beginning, when you were talking about Winnicott and all of that, I was thinking about an article that I once read about Kibbutz Avim, honoring the mother and the father. And it was written by a guy who had felt very disappointed in his parents that they, uh, he felt they had been not loving. And I don't remember all the details, but, you know, maybe even to being abusive. And he said that uh, only when he had his own child and he had to take care of his own child, did he come to appreciate his parents because he realized that if nothing else, they kept him alive when he was an infant. 
And I found that so moving, you know, to think that if you could just think back to that, the physical attention that your parent must have provided for you to still have made it, you know, for you have made it, that that was just really, really powerful. Um, the other thing I want to look is more of a question, which is I'm a climate activist. So I love the way you ended there. <laughs> and I think that, um, you know, there is like a lot of uh, writings about, I don't know a lot, but writings about eco psychology and a lot about uh, is a lot about the earth as mother. And I just was wondering when you said how we could, um, how did you say it, um, how we could give that room in our Jewish practice, what ideas you have about that? Fantastic. Um, thank you. And I see there's other comments. So I'll just be be brief. I just want to say that story you shared of a writer who wait, once he became a parent, he was able to then realize what his parents provided, as you said so beautifully, the physical attention provided him. So what I would like to say is, here's where culture is supposed to help us. That we are relying that every individual might wait till they choose to have a child. Not everybody has a child. That they might firsthand learn what child rearing is about and then come to understand motherhood. Okay. Let's just, to say that that's inefficient is to put it mildly. What should be happening, what, what culture and religion can do is provide each of us with a sense of appreciation for maternal care, that what I mean is the constant care, so that you don't have to learn it every time. Right now, each of us, it's very expensive. Maybe you're going to therapy, okay, to figure out how to restore family relationships, how to recover, how to... I recently learned that the, the uh, Jewish uh, wisdom teacher, Yamima, talks about this notion of pulling the golden threads of one's childhood, that, that we can do the work of pulling the golden threads and reestablishing our connections to parents through maybe periods of alienation, pain, abuse. Everybody is doing that work at a major disadvantage because we don't just have an initial positive uh, forgive me, I can't think of a better word, like iconography for it. In fact, I'm looking behind me, the famous um, Arthur Schick Haggadah, Manishtana. Um, we have a lot of male iconography, even in Judaism, which avoids, you know, too much emphasis on like portraiture and imagery. But we have Avinu Malkeinu, okay? But we need Torah Imecha, to help us stay positive, even in the context of our own family relationships. So, and in terms of how, from a climate perspective, how this could help, I do think, for example, because we're a language of words and we're a language of utterances, even just amen, as a term that we use at home and in shul and every, to say, affirm, affirm a bracha, that each time it could also summon an association with constancy. I hate to say this, but if you notice, I, the mother sometimes disappears and instead I'm talking about constancy more abstractly, but the constant matters and how they matter. So to take a, a all the time, El Melech Ne'eman, before saying the Shema, what does it mean to have the melech that's ne'eman? 
maybe that's also bringing in the regular the regular needs and uh that's just one possibility of how to infuse it um yeah alex i'll i'll let i'll defer to you for um yeah sure let's do a judy and then aglaya yeah i i your your talk made me think of infants and the object permanence that they have trouble with where you know you, you cover your face they can't see you then peekaboo um that's why Hester Panim is so disturbing to us because in our understanding of God, we are still infants. And when God hides God's face or presence, it is so deeply disturbing because then we assume that God is not does not exist, not just not with us, but doesn't exist at all. So that's beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. Hey, Glaya. Hi. Um, I don't know if this is going to make a whole lot of sense, though, but um, as someone, you know, just speaking from someone who never gave birth to any of them and everything, but I can tell you that, um, you know, is, you know, like having that motherhood, you know, aspect awakened in you, um, it can happen. I'm not going to tell you right now. It's too long of a story to get into, though, but how that happened to me, though. But long story short, though, my concern here is those that, you um, when, you know, like it comes to people like me who also I inherit parenting messes, messes when I'm as a teacher and everything, though, the idea that if you're an adult and, you know, they're children and you see something not so cool going on, then what is your responsibility as the adult? You know, parents cannot watch children 24-7. It's just impossible. No one, like no one to parents can. So the idea that, well, all of the adults, the village has to raise the children, you know, like, well, they do, they have to raise the children. So my question is, is that um, putting the, I mean, I understand, you know, like you're saying, it's not all on one biological mother, though, but I think our society kind of underestimates one, the maternal, you know, that that maternal instinct can be brought out in anyone, you know, female, male, non-binary, at any time, no matter how old the person is, because like you're saying, you can say amen, but then you are agreeing to, you know, a certain constancy, a certain maternal constancy to this person who could be 20 million years older than you and everything though. But yeah, you're still agreeing to that. But also like, if we take it from the, okay, the biological parents do this in the home before the child goes out into the world into, you know, like, nope, it's constant. I don't know how to put it exactly though, but yeah, um, just my concern is I see adults just basically just blow it off when they see children, you know, and I don't agree with that. I think the adults should say, you know, like, hey, you almost knocked this person down. I understand that you're full of energy and you're like a jumping beam right now, but you almost knocked them down. You need to, you know, settle down, kids. I don't know if that's making any sense. Ab absolute sense. And um I, just to your language there about how motherhood can get awakened in you and that it's not, and it, it's a, it's not, it's not limited to biological mothers, not limited to women. It's, it's a, it's a function almost that can be awakened in you. If you're a teacher, it could be awakened in you. If you're providing care for an elder, it can awaken in you. If you're in a environment, a synagogue context, a school context where you're charged with that task, of providing for in a pretty regular and constant way. Um, you also can provide it for yourself. 
we are in a time right now, what I would say a pretty acute care crisis because the, the nuclear family is not actually capable of providing the fullness of care, what I call ambient care. Um, and so, uh, and human beings, you know, we are born in a very unfinished state and we are finished. This is this is anthropologist Clifford Geertz writing 60 years ago. We are born unfinished and then we're finished in the culture of our early environment. But right now, early <clears throat> environments are highly deficient. Um, and so you're seeing that crisis play out. So yet another reason to uh, awaken awareness about care and what human beings need to survive and thrive. Um, it's a little bit overwhelming because the crisis of care in terms of children and what their needs are, elderly and what their needs are, it, it's staggering. Um, but I, 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 so I, I'm just, so I affirm what you're sharing in terms of the challenges here. And also what you're saying, if you find yourself in the context with, with, with kids where you get some sense, they're not getting what they need. They're not getting the kind of structure holding supervision. And what do you do as an adult in that environment? It's a big question. So I just thank you for sharing it. Uh, hi, Cheryl. Hi. Um, thank you, uh, Dr. Aronoff. Um, what's Tina Turner says, what's love got to do with it? You talked a lot about um, uh, care and uh, I, uh, all the things, care and um, faithfulness and constancy. And how about for that, where does that biological or actually the um, hormonal uh, motherhood, you know, you say you love your baby the second it's born. Um, and maybe that's not necessarily the truth for some people and some people have to learn that do they learn that we always talk in the in the torah we talk about loving god but in all of the words that you use like amen and omen and which i i loved i loved and emuna i loved all of that but i didn't um hear the word love so much nice catch <laughs> Um, I do. I, I think that what I would say is that if if what I what I would say is if I hear the phrase "you love your baby the moment it's born," I would like to replace that with "you are with your baby the moment it's born." And this is what I mean about switching the foregrounds and the backgrounds of our narratives. If the with were properly tended to and supported in our society. Then I would say, oh, I've got a few extra minutes. Let's talk about love. Okay. But because we're in a crisis of the with, I mean, I, I, yes, you're right. I, I've put love aside because that kind of summons all kinds of like an affective state of, of relaxation, joy, desire. Um, I've put that aside and I'm talking about the very, um, almost flat in its affect when I say with, when I say that the Hebrew word aim, as it developed in our 
Torah possibly expanded to refer to care for a young child and not in not with the kind of strong affect of love, but in the notion simply of constant presence. Uh, but Cheryl, what I would want to say is that I I would like to swing back to the to love. Um, when I feel that we can kind of afford it. Because right now the love language is covering over the neglected constant role. So right now, and maybe I'll go so far as to say that those love narratives are actually getting in the way. <laughs> I'll even say one more thing. I think the love narratives are getting the way in the way of marriage. Because marriage and committed relationships is about with, with possible periodic, you know, love mixed in. But love is what gets a lot of the attention and also therefore a lot of the frustrations and disappointments and, you know, projections and the narcissism. And so like sometimes clearing away the love story and the fairy tale to allow for what does day-to-day -day regular relationship look like and the threads of that connection could, could have a similar effect in people having a sense of gratitude for the constant aspects of relationship. And I'm not talking about just marriage, anything that is constant, it needs our attention right now. So that's, that's kind of what I would say to that. Andrea, you get the last question. Um, actually, it just was an acknowledgement. Um, this is a beautiful teaching, Dina. And um, I particularly like, and I may be repeating what you said a little bit, the idea of an inversion. Um, families and working class families and middle class families are under tremendous pressure. And the availability of really, really good infant care and child care, care workers are notoriously underpaid. And it really gets down to like social values overall. And it's tremendously important. And um, so springing from, you know, Jewish tradition, and I just loved how you opened it up. I will go and look at the sources. But it is a huge issue, you know, of really where our social priorities are in this country. And a lot of the workers tend to be women, but a stressed parent or a stressed worker it's really hard to find that constant love, particularly if you're, you have more, you know, too many kids that you're caring for and you're underpaid and you're worried. So um, it really has that inversion is extremely important to think about politically and socially. Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, well, thank you all very much for being here. And of course, thank you, Dr. Aronoff, for joining us today. Um, just to let everyone know, our next program will be Thursday, February 16th at 10 a.m. Mountain Time. Uh, we'll be joined by Rabbi Dr. Mira Nishama Whale for What If Faith for Nonbelievers and Other Ways of Rethinking Emuna. So we hope that you can join us for that. And I hope you all have a great uh, rest of your day. Thanks again for being here. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Valley Beit Midrash podcast. Remember that you can join our email list at valleybeitmidrash.org to stay up to date on new programs, learning opportunities, and more ways to stay connected. If you enjoyed learning with us today, support our work by making a donation at valleybeitmidrash.org donate. Join us next time as we continue to work together to build a better world. Thanks for listening.